morning, Your Honor, and may it please the Court, Adam Landis from Landis, Rath & Cobb on behalf of FBX Trading Limited and its affiliated debtors. We are here on what started out as a rather extensive agenda, but now has been narrowed down to just two matters going forward. We appreciate Your Honor's entry of orders in connection with items numbers 7, 8, 9, and 10, so those matters need not go forward. We only have two matters that will proceed today. The first is item number 11, which is the second joint motion of the debtors and the Committee of Unsecured Creditors for an order authorizing the redaction or withholding of certain confidential information. That will be handled by Mr. Gluckstein of Sullivan Cromwell. The second is item number 12, which is the debtors motion for entry of an order granting leave from Local Rule 3007-1F in connection with substantive claim objections. That will be handled by Ms. Brown of my office. But before we get to those matters, Mr. Dederich of Sullivan Cromwell has an update for the Court, and so I'll yield the podium to him. Mr. Dederich? Thank you, Mr. Landis. Good morning, Your Honor. Your Honor, we, believe it or not, are approaching the first anniversary of the case. Exactly, exactly. It's been a very long but productive year. I'd like to take a moment, if I could, to put in perspective briefly what this Court's protection has meant to creditors. On the eve of our filing, if you go back in time to November 10th, global creditors faced the possibility, the real possibility, of a near total loss. This was not a simple bank run. Banks keep records and know where their assets are. This was different. Regulators were seizing assets. Insolvency filings had started in the Bahamas and Australia. The founders of the company were facing criminal prosecution. The general counsel couldn't be found. Companies in the group had no books and records of significance, and many had never had board meetings. What digital assets remained had been left with little protection against theft or hacks. And what changed everything was the filing for bankruptcy in this Court. There was no other choice at the time. There was nowhere else to go. The automatic stay in the U.S. bankruptcy system and its openness to foreign debtors made this result possible. We're asked constantly if we can project creditor recoveries. We cannot yet, not with certainty. But I will say this. They could easily have been pennies had FTX been subject to separate liquidations, fire sales, government seizures, and hacks all over the world. There could have been nothing left. Now, the central actor in this rescue is John Rath, who made the call to file over 100 companies for bankruptcy after three hours on the job. But he has not been alone. We have a very active board of directors with whom we've spent several hours a week on FTX matters for over a year. And we have an extremely engaged official committee of creditors, one of the most engaged I've experienced in my career. The individual members have devoted countless hours to this case, countless personal time, many of them without compensation. And we have an active and passionate customer groups. Your Honor may note that many of them sued us near the beginning of the case, filed adversary proceedings on customer property issues. Well, our solution to that, our invitation, which they accepted, was to come into the kitchen of this case and help us formulate a plan. And the result has been a better plan and a better process. So today, Your Honor, I'm very pleased to speak for the debtors to say we appreciate all the work by so many parties that have created this, that have taken this very, very complicated case and resulted in a very complicated result. And we appreciate your patience and your time. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Dieter. Mr. Landis, thank you. The case is submitted.
resulted in, although still substantial time, a demand from Your Honor, a relatively small amount of court time compared to the amount of time that has been spent by the professionals out of court. And I think that's a testament to everybody's attitude in all of the meetings and negotiations that we've had over this year. So when I was we surprised by that myself. <laughs> how much, how, but it, how it, little there's been litigation so far. But I, I feel that it might be coming down the road. We'll it, 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 I, it, I, I do not want to jinx anything by saying <laughs> it will continue, and we should always be be, be ready to um, what's it you know prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Um, we've certainly prepared a lot more litigation than your honor has seen. <laughs> um, so where do we stand? Well, there's a couple things I think to bring to the court's attention. First, we have a proposed architecture now for a plan of reorganization. And that architecture, I'm pleased to say, is supported by every constituency with whom we consulted about the plan structure. The plan is the result of public solicitation of comments from stakeholders, an unusual step that we took given the complexity of the case and its public significance. Your Honor will note that we circulated a draft plan, filed a draft plan publicly on July 31st, and solicited public comments on a number of study questions for the group. Well, we have answers and dialogue and conversations on each of those questions, and we think they've been fairly resolved. We have a proposed settlement now of customer property issues in the case. The settlement has two key components. One is in the plan, and the other is an offer to settle preferences, because the customer property issues, of course, relate to both what we're doing in the plan of reorganization and a defense customers might assert to preferences. Neither of those settlements is being proposed to the court today, but given their significance, I'll spend just a moment on them. The plan settlement follows the architecture in the draft plan. The plan creates three pools of value, one for the dot-com customer, one for the U.S. customer, and a general pool. And I'm excluding from this, Your Honor, certain pools of value for separate subsidiaries that have their own logic to them. But in the main case, there's three of these pools of value. Each customer pool includes the assets that were segregated and identifiably segregated for customers at the commencement of the case. But there's a shortfall in each pool. The assets that are still there are less than the customer entitlements against those assets. So also in each customer's pool is what we call a shortfall claim. And the shortfall claim is a claim against the general pool for the return of the missing money. That shortfall claim has been the crux of the negotiation we've had with customers over the last months. Because there's a question, how should it rank? Is it a general unsecured claim side by side with other customers? Or is the nature of the facts of our case such that the shortfall claim really should be seen as a constructive trust claim or a floating charge imposed for equitable reasons on the rest of the estate? And there's strong arguments on both sides. There's also tracing questions that are raised. Well, the negotiated solution to this question is to create in the plan of reorganization a modified priority for the shortfall claims. And the compromise we'll be proposing in the plan with the support of all the people that were involved is that 66% of those shortfall claims have a priority, effectively like an equitable lien or floating charge on all the, all the global value. And the remaining portion of the shortfall claim is a deficiency claim that ranks equal with the general unsecured creditors. Um, the, that negotiation was hard fought. Um, we think we have a strong record for it. Participating in it were not just representatives of customers in both of the pools, 
but also the debtors and the general, uh, the, the creditors committee on behalf of general unsecured creditors. The preference settlement, Your Honor, is a general offer that the debtors have agreed to make in the plan of reorganization as part of the balloting process. That offer is an offer to customers that are defined as eligible customers, and we'll get to that in a moment. Eligible customers are given the opportunity to accept uh, a, a preference offer settlement from the debtors, which is calculated in a particular negotiated way. And that calculation focuses on the change in trading activity that happened nine days before the petition date was filed and identifies a nine-day period where um, uh, the, there's a preference, kind of a modified preference look-back period. And the preference settlement is an offer for 15% of the net exposure uh, during that period of time. And customers are permitted to settle that preference exposure uh, in their ballot, which will be identified. They'll be identified both the amount of their claim and the amount of their preference exposure. They're permitted to voluntarily elect to settle that preference exposure either by credit against their claim or by payment of cash. C customers don't have to take that offer, Your Honor. They can say no in which case it'll be resolved in the ordinary course. Now there's a, a large number of customers that may not be eligible for that settlement. We've excluded from that settlement not just obvious categories of affiliates and insiders, but in the public disclosure and the papers we'll file, there's a categorization of other excluded customers, which includes, importantly, customers against whom the estate has some other cause of action unrelated to preferences, or customers for whom the facts of the circumstance suggested the debtors that the settlement would not be fair to the estate. So that process will unfold. We'll have papers for it. Um, the other thing I would say, Your Honor, just to be clear, to get the terms right, um, we have a de minimis uh, concept in the preference settlement so that customers with less than $250,000 of preference exposure are excluded. But customers are, are, are you know, cautioned not to rely on my statements today about this but to read the, the language that has been now, is now public in the, um, in the term sheet that we circulated with the plan support agreement. The next item, Your Honor, is the plan support agreement. We have one. Um, this is also not something we'll be seeking court approval of. It, the debtor's not bound by it, but it is an important step forward because we have plan support commitment from the customer that had filed the adversary proceedings as well as um, support from the official committee of creditors. So that's a great milestone for us. The plan support agreement does have some milestones, but the milestones won't surprise your honor. They're the same milestones we've been using in this case from the beginning in terms of our plan timetable, which involves, to simplify, um, a plan and disclosure statement that we intend to file by no December 16th, a um, disclosure statement hearing uh, in March, and confirmation of the plan um, really as soon as we can, but probably in the middle or near the end of the second quarter. We also, Your Honor, have, are trying and have, I think, are also making progress on some of the other items that we've identified as matters that would otherwise result in difficult or complicated plan litigation. And I want to run through those briefly as well. The first, is our dispute with the JPLs in the Bahamas. Well, I'm pleased to say we are also, under the guidance of Judge Fitzgerald, having constructive dialogue with the Bahamas. And we hope to have good news on that front sometime later in November. We're also building an approach to another issue that has worried us from the beginning of the case, 
and we know is near and dear to um, many of our customers. How do we value digital assets for the purposes of our plan? In November, we'll be filing a motion to estimate digital asset values for purposes of plan treatment. The motion is being prepared, like everything we're doing, in consultation with the official committee and the ad hoc customer committees so that issues and disputes are avoided wherever possible before we get to court. But that's an important milestone for us as well, Your Honor, because although many digital assets are relatively straightforward to value, other ones have circumstances that will raise disputes if we don't call those out and try to resolve those now. So rather than wait um, and embed those issues in confirmation uh, litigation next year, we're going to try to bring those forward and resolve those by omnibus estimation um, sooner. We also, Your Honor, have broken a logjam with our official committee on the, on the monetization of our assets. The debtors generally have sought to monetize assets promptly. Sometimes our official committee has been more inclined to hold assets in the hopes of future appreciation. This is a legitimate business discussion, and I'm pleased to say we have consensus on what we will be selling immediately and what we are holding for a little while longer given market, market dynamics. Your Honor knows we have a merits settlement with Genesis, and we have procedural settlements with Voyager and BlockFi. The SNC team, at least, is very happy to see these settlements because they avoid what are some of the most difficult issues we faced in the case um, that relate to the venue question when two debtors collide. But I, I think we have navigated all of that, so we know that even though we have disputes with some of these other debtors that remain to be resolved, we have an understanding of where those disputes will be resolved and in what kind of a process. Finally, Your Honor, we've done this work while assisting with regulatory and criminal investigations around the world, including the prosecution of Sam Bankman-Fried, whose trial continues in front of Judge Kaplan in New York. We've done so cooperating with the government authorities, not just because it's the right thing to do. We've done so because it's in the economic interest of our creditors. Cooperation with the governments, governments around the world has implications for our plan. Since customers and other creditors as well as the corporate entities were, in our view, defrauded. The plan subordinates government fines and penalties around the world to creditor recoveries. We are asking government creditors to join this class voluntarily. And as an example, the CFTC in the US has already acknowledged this in their $8.7 billion proof of claim, which as submitted um, uh, acknowledges the subordinated status of our class of government uh, restitution and fines. So, Your Honor, we're going to continue at pace. Uh, we intend to make progress uh, prior to effectiveness and not to wait for effectiveness on many of the things cases do after effectiveness. We will continue to resolve the material <coughs> claims, so you'll see claim objections from us over the next months, especially on our larger claims. We will continue to sell material assets and you'll see asset disposition motions. And we'll continue to pursue material outbound litigation. This is not a case where we're going to wait for the formation of a litigation trust some way, someday and see how it does. But the material pieces of litigation we intend to commence during this case. Our goal is not merely to confirm a plan and then go home. Our goal is to make distributions to customers as promptly as we can. And to do that, we know it takes a lot of work now so that as we walk into confirmation and effectiveness, we don't have the large reserves for disputed items 
that have delayed distributions and other large cases, sometimes for many, many years. So that's our status and a little bit of our philosophy <laughs> on, on how to conduct this, and I'm happy to take any questions, Your Honor. Okay. No, I don't have any questions at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be uh, heard on this issue? Yes, thank you. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the official committee. Um, let me start, Your Honors. I very much appreciate Mr. Dietrich's acknowledgement of the committee's uh, hard work in, in getting us with the debtors, with the ad hoc group, uh, and the other stakeholders to where we are today. Um, as Mr. Dietrich said, our members have been very actively involved. Um, as you know, they are residents all over the globe, um, came to New York for a series of meetings, and those meetings and the negotiations that Your Honor knows we were pushing to have as soon as possible resulted in the plan support agreement and, and the structure that Mr. Dietrich outlined. Um, there is a lot of work to do. Um, we're looking forward to doing it with the other stakeholders as we proceed. And I think I just, the only other thing I'd like to say is picking up on Mr. Dietrich's last comment. The milestones are what they are. We would like to see and we will be doing our best as I know the debtors will and the other stakeholders to move as fast as we can and do better than those milestones because the goal here is to get recoveries to the creditors, to the customers, at the earliest possible date, and obviously maximize those recoveries. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Matthew Harvey from Morris Nichols Arshton Tunnel on behalf of the Ad Hoc Committee of non-USFTX.com customers. Um, again, Your Honor, I wanna echo um, Mr. Pasquale's comments, Mr. Dieterich's comments, and thank them for acknowledging uh, the hard work that the ad hoc committee put into this. Uh, Your Honor, it really took months of hard-fought negotiations, but we were pleased that the settlement that was ultimately reached of the customer property issues gave appropriate account to the customer property arguments that we have been advancing since the beginning of the case and also resulted in what we believe is a favorable framework for preference settlements. And I, Mr. Dieterich mentioned, excuse me, customers are not required to take that settlement. We do think it's a favorable framework for customers to settle into should they so desire. Um, and again, Your Honor, we're pleased with the outcome here. And uh, it, it's not stated directly in the um, document filed with the court, but in the accompanying press release from the debtors, the debtors noted correctly that they expect that this will result in approximately 90% of distributable value in the states globally going to customers. So again, the ad hoc committee was pleased with the cooperation of the parties and the outcome here. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Anyone else? No. Okay. Your Honor, Andy Dieterich, just one, one point, and it's not at all a contradiction, thank you, and thank you. Um, I just wanted to say one more time, because there's been a little bit of confusion among some of the press on the 90% number, and I want to underscore what that is and what that is not. We do not know what the level of customer recovery from the case is going to be. We're hoping it's a nice recovery, but we don't know. Um, in the press release, there's some factors that we listed for people to consider about what will drive actual recoveries, including the size of the claims pool in this case, which is, which is also a kind of an open question. The 90% number is a, is, a, is a number that we use simply to demonstrate the following, which is based upon our current assumptions about assets and liabilities and the size of the claims pool. We estimate that 90% of global value, whatever global value there is, will ultimately go to customers in the case. 
It could be a 20% case or a, a 20 cent case or a 40 cent case or an 80 cent case or a 100 cent case. Right? We do not know the answer to that yet. But what we are projecting at this time is a, the substantial majority, the lion's share of value that we have to distribute is going to go to customers internationally or customers in the United States. I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. I understood that. Thank so, you. I think, I think for the press, the idea is the 90% is what's expected to be distributed based on whatever the recovery ultimately turns out to be. We don't know what that recovery is at this point. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, for the record, Brian Glutzkin, Sullivan and Cromwell for the debtors. Um, the first item going forward on this morning's agenda is item 11, which is the second joint motion of the debtors and the committee uh, seeking an order pursuant to section 107B of bankruptcy code to extend for another 90 days uh, the period by which all customers' names and addresses are redacted from the public record. Um, Your Honor, in support of uh, that motion, um, we have in the courtroom this morning Mr. Kevin Kosky of Cabrillo Weinberg Partners, um, who is, uh, we'd like to call uh, as a witness to uh, make the evidentiary record we need uh, in support of this motion. Okay. Come forward. <clears throat> Please take the stand and remain standing for the oath. Please raise your right hand. Please state your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. Kevin Michael Kofsky, C-O-F-S-K-Y. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? I do. You may be seated, Your Honor. You'll be ready, Mr. Kofsky. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, good morning, Mr. Kofsky. Good morning. Uh, Mr. Kofsky, you have testified before the court twice uh, previously in support of uh, the debtor's motions to redact customer names and addresses, correct? Yes, that's correct. Can you briefly remind <coughs> the court of your background and qualifications, please? Uh, yes. Um, I graduated from the Wharton School of Business um, with a uh, major in economics and a concentration in finance. Um, I started my career as an analyst in financial restructuring at Wuhan Loki. Uh, I uh, attended the University of Pennsylvania Law School and the Fell Center of Government. Um, and then um, I was a, an attorney um, clerking with Chief Justice Ports in the New Jersey Supreme Court. Um, and I practiced law for Vaseline and Moore. Uh, and then I joined uh, Evercore Partners, um, uh, ultimately as a managing director. Uh, and I left Evercore um, to join a predecessor firm, Cabrera Weinberg Partners, in 2006, and I've been with Perella since that time, focusing uh, most of my career in restructuring and liability management. <coughs> Mr. Kofsky, can you please remind the court um, as to the scope of work to which you and your colleagues at Perella Weinberg Partners have been retained to assist the debtors with in these cases? Uh, yes, we've been retained as the investment banker for uh, the debtors, and um, to that end, we have been asked to um, monetize a number of assets to evaluate um, uh, various ways in which to maximize the value of the debtors' assets. 
And, and does that work include uh, <coughs> any work with respect to monetization of the debtors' uh, legacy exchanges? Yes, we've spent considerable time evaluating the potential to either reorganize the legacy exchange assets or to partner with others or to sell those assets. And you per you're personally involved in that work? Yes, I am. Mr. Kosky, uh, have you become aware of information since your prior testimony in June of 2023 that changes any of your prior opinions as to the need to keep the debtors' customer information confidential? Uh, no. Um, in fact, my experience since my last testimony only serves to uh, enhance my view that the value of those um, customer identities um, to the estate is, is high and very important. <coughs> Mr. Kofsky, uh, are the customer lists, the names, addresses, information of the customers, a source of value, in your opinion, to the debtors if they were to sell the exchange assets? Yes. Uh, <coughs> how about if the debtor were to reorganize uh, the FTX exchanges in some way? Would they be a source of value to the debtor? Uh, yes, they would. And how about, do you, do you have an opinion as to whether the debtor's customer information, names and addresses uh, have value to the debtors on a standalone basis if they were to be monetized simply as information? Yes. <coughs> and can you uh, elaborate uh, just a little bit as to your, uh, your views as to um, the potential sources of that value? Uh, sure. Um, as I testified um, previously, I, actually I don't recall if it was in my declaration or my prior testimony, but um, we have been uh, engaging in a, an outreach process um, with a number of interested parties um, to either acquire the um, legacy exchange assets uh, and or to partner with the debtors in connection with a relaunch of the exchange. Uh, we've been evaluating that process um, uh, relative to the potential to reorganize the assets on a standalone basis. Um, uh, as I testified previously, that process has been quite robust uh, and we <clears throat> on the basis of my discussions with those counterparties, it has become very clear uh, that they place significant value on uh, the identities of those customers and the potential to have those customers uh, continue to utilize uh, the new platform, uh, whether that's a reorganized platform, a partnered platform, or a, a sale to this uh, potential investor, uh, and the exclusive access to those customer lists um, is very important and has been a critical element of our conversations. <coughs> and, and, and where are you in that process today? Um, take us from June through today as far as how far, uh, what you've been doing uh, in terms of the process to magnetize it, yes. Sure. Um, we initially um, had a very broad outreach, number of inbounds, um, over 70 parties that were contacted or contacted us. Um, we have narrowed uh, that uh, significantly based on our evaluation of the indications of interest. Um, we are now engaging in uh, robust discussions with a handful of parties. Um, we are engaging in, they are engaging in diligence, we are engaging in diligence, and we are having very detailed conversations on a regular basis regarding uh, the terms and the structure of a potential transaction. 
Mr. Koski, do you have a view uh, as to timing uh, for the debtors to potentially <coughs> conclude the process and enter into a transaction? Uh, I don't have a, a specific date. Um, these are very complicated transactions um, given the regulatory framework and the complicated nature of these cases. Um, I, I am optimistic um, that we will be in a position to um, have either a stalking horse bid or uh, we'll have made a determination with respect to a reorganized exchange um, on or prior to the date that uh, Mr. Diederich referred to earlier, which is the December 16th milestone. Mr. Koski, do you have a, a view, as the debtors investment banker today, whether the immediate disclosure of customer names and information, uh, names, addresses, and other identifiable information would jeopardize the ability to maximize that value? I, I do. As I stated earlier, uh, the exclusive um, access to the identities of those customers and the potential to bring those customers onto a, a reconstituted or new exchange is a, a critical element of the discussions that we're having with these counterparties. So I think um, it, it's clear to me that disclosure of those customer lists and those names um, would significantly impact our ability to consummate a sale and maximize value. Thank you. No further questions, Ron. Thank you. Hank Cross. <coughs> Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, Mr. Kofsky. Katie Townsend on behalf of media interveners, New York Times, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and The Financial Times. Uh, Mr. Kofsky, uh, you recall we met each other back in, in June. Um, I believe your testimony was that since that time in June, your view of the potential value of the names of debtors, creditors, customers has not changed in any way. Is that, is that accurate? Um, I'm not sure that characterizes what I said. Um, okay. Well, then let me, sure. let me ask it this way. Um, sure. Since June, has your view of the potential value of the names of debtors, customers, creditors to the estate changed in any way? Uh, it has. My view, if you don't mind, I, I want to make sure I'm clear. Um, when I was answering uh, Mr. Gluckstein's question, my view that the customers uh, the identities and the customer <laughs> list have value, hasn't changed. Um, my view of the quantum of value has changed um, as I've engaged in discussions with these counterparties. Um, the value uh, is even greater than I had previously expected. Uh, how many counterparties <coughs> have you been in discussions with that have, have changed your view as to the quantum of value? Um, I, I don't want to give a specific number um, because we have, as I indicated, we've narrowed the field from a large number um, to uh, a smaller number uh, in what we're calling our, our second round. Um, it's a handful of parties. Uh, how many? <coughs> um, Jack, Your Honor, I, I, we have an ongoing sale process. I think Mr. Kofsky's testimony is about his relative view that there is value. I'm not sure getting into specific numbers and, and information about bidders is appropriate or necessary. If I may, Your Honor, Mr. Kofsky's a fact witness. He's provided effectively at this point hearsay testimony about discussions he's had with counterparties 
He's not even going to tell us the number, I assume, although I'll ask him. He's not going to tell us the identities of those counterparties. I think that's relevant to his, uh, certainly his testimony, but our ability to cross him. I think you can answer the number, <clears throat> but not identify the individual parties. Uh, there are three. Um, if, if I ask you, and I don't want to confuse you, but in light of the court's um, instruction that you not name those parties, can you, in your mind, assign each of them a letter? So A, B, C, party number one, counterparty number one, let's call it counterparty A. The second one, counterparty B, the third one, counterparty C. C can you do that and keep them kind of clear in your mind as A is one, B is one, and is one. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll try to do that. Okay. Um, how many conversations have you had with representatives of counterparty A where you discussed the potential value of uh, the names, only the names, of FTX customer creditors? I can't say specifically, but certainly over 10. Every conversation that we have with all these parties, um, we have been uh, negotiating term sheets. Uh, and engaging in significant diligence. Um, uh, and so the question of the value of um, their proposals um, is obviously relevant to all of our conversations and a significant element of their term sheet um, revolves around the extent to which they will have access to those customers. So certainly over 10, um, for each of those parties in terms of conversations we've had regarding the value and the value of the customers. During, and let's take <coughs> any of them, A, B, or C, any of those three parties, in any of those conversations you've had, has there been a specific monetary amount attached to the names, names alone of FTX customers? There, there has been. Um, I want to be clear. Um, the bids are holistic. Um, there's a specific quantum of consideration being provided. Um, there isn't, uh, by the nature of these proposals, there are not um, values not allocated by into one group versus another group versus another group. Um, of the assets. However, it's clear from the structure of the proposals and the bids and our negotiations that a significant portion of the value is attributable to uh, the identities of those customers. And um, we're talking about, a, to put this in context, we're talking about a digital asset exchange. And so the revenue that is generated from an exchange um, is a function of the customers on that exchange and the extent to which those customers transact. And so the customers uh, historically of FTX um, demonstrated by their historical um, participation on the exchange that they uh, transacted quite frequently. And so the, um, the counterparties are very interested in having that level of um, customer engagement and future transactions um, on a platform where they can benefit economically from that. So when you say holistic, the bids are holistic, <coughs> you mean they're for the exchanges as a whole, which would include 
customer base. Is that fair to say? Well, the proposals are, each of the proposals is, is different um, in structure and type, um, but each of the proposals is for an entire transaction. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a proposal for one asset and another proposal for another asset and another proposal for another asset. So each, uh, while each proposal is um, different in character, each of them includes uh, the, the purchase in exclusive use of the customers, uh, the historical customers of FTX, and it's been clear as we've engaged in dialogue over price and terms and structure that that element is a very significant element of what the um, counterparties are seeking to acquire. You say it's clear. How is it clear? <clears throat> it's clear based on my conversations and based on the term sheets. What in any conversation that you've had with any of these counterparties makes clear that, um, st strike that. Let me, so just to be clear, none of the bids or term sheets that you've reviewed with respect to any of these counterparties includes as an independent or values as an independent asset the names of, just the names of FTX customers. Is that accurate? I'm actually, I, I don't think that is accurate. Um, again, these are complicated uh, structures. Um, we're talking about the names, identities, and the potential engagement of these customers on a future exchange. And so the extent to which those customers might engage on the future exchange is a critical element of the value that would be provided to the estate. So um, the parties have made it clear that uh, to the extent that, um, let, me, let me rephrase, a critical element of the proposals is ensuring that the identities of the customers does not um, become available to other parties. So for example, <coughs> um, the diligence process has been very complicated uh, because um, none of the parties who are engaging with want the other parties who are engaging with the debtors to see the identities of those customers. Um, they've made it very clear that they are highly focused on ensuring that they have the exclusive um, access to the list and the identities so that they can contact those parties and they can maximize the potential for those customers to transact on an exchange going forward. And so it's created some interesting logistical obstacles for the debtor to overcome as we have been spending a lot of time with these parties. They've made it clear that they are highly focused on um, being able to utilize those customers going forward, but yet they obviously don't want other parties who they're competing with to see those names. So we're we've been managing through that. So that, to give you a sense of um, why I have confidence that the counterparties place significant value on the customers. They're, they're telling me that they do. And has any counterparty told you that they as assign a specific <coughs> monetary value, a specific monetary value to the names alone of those customers? Or is it as, I think I understand your testimony to say it's part of the whole package. Is that fair to say? 
There's, you've asked two questions. One, um, no, no party has told us that they are ascribing X value specifically to the name. Um, some of the proposals are um, have various components to them, and portions of the consideration that would be provided to the estate are a function of the extent to which existing customers transact on the future exchange going forward. And so by virtue of that construct, um, the conversation has been quite clear that the um, exclusive access to these customers is of critical importance. So we, we have had specific conversations about that and about um, the extent to which the value that would be provided to the estate um, would be conditioned on the extent to which customers uh, transact on the future exchange or um, are accessible to others and therefore um, are not available to that counterparty. Since June, have you <coughs> done any work to determine how many of FTX's customer <coughs> creditors are in fact exclusive or exclusively traded on FTX exchanges? Um, we actually are in the process of um, undertaking that in connection, excuse me, <coughs> in connection with the diligence process that I just alluded to. Um, there's a complicated uh, undertaking by a third party that will have um, access to the counterparties lists on a confidential basis and the debtors lists, and, and I don't believe they actually look at the list, but um, they're able to evaluate the extent to which the customers are unique to FTX or the counterparty or there's overlap. When will that process be completed? Uh, I, I actually don't know. I was just reviewing emails on this process um, this morning. So um, it's currently ongoing. But as you sit here today, as you sit here today, <coughs> you can't say whether or not, let's take counterparty A as an example, there's 100% overlap between FTX's current customer list or names of customers and counterparty A's. Is that, is that accurate? I would be shocked if all of our customers were on another exchange, but I can't say for certain because I have not reviewed their list. And so when you say exclusive, when you refer to exclusive <coughs> access to the names of FTX customers that the counterparties are interested in, you mean exclusive in the sense that other counterparties don't have access to that during this bid process. Is that accurate? Can you restate that? I want to make sure I sure. answer the right question. You testified um, that the counterparties you've been speaking to have an interest in exclusive access mm -hmm. to the names of FTX's creditor customers. When you use the word exclusive in that context, you mean vis-a-vis -vis other counterparties during the bid process. Is that accurate or do you mean something else by exclusive? No, no, I, I, that's not what I mean. Um, it's, it's not a question, uh, there, there are two elements to that. One, um, it's not versus only the counterparties to the bid process, um, it's to the rest of the world because if other parties who would 
our competitors um, of FTX historically and or sought to compete in this bid process or for whatever reason didn't, um, had access to these customer lists, uh, the bidders in our process would be um, a significant element of the value that they would be providing would no longer be relevant if they viewed their ability to access these customers somewhere else or if other parties already had access to the identities of those customers and could contact them and solicit them. Um, so it's not, it's not limited to these parties. It's just that these are the parties who um, are left in the process because uh, they have provided the most compelling structure and terms to um, the debtors for the acquisition of these assets or to partner with the debtors. But you don't mean exclusivity <coughs> in the sense that they're exclusive necessarily customers of FTX. You're talking about access to the name, the list of names of FTX customers. Is that fair to say? I want to make sure I'm answering clearly. Um, the customers are free to transact on multiple exchanges, but the fact that they are customers historically of FTX um, and that they had been transacting on our exchange is unique to FTX. And so um, the counterparties would not have exclusive um, rights to contact these parties. Um, anyone's free to take out an ad in a newspaper and try to contact as many customers as they would like. Um, but that's different than um, the fact that this customer list um, and these specific customers had transacted on FTX. So I, I hope I'm answering your question. Since June, have you or anyone at Corolla Weinberg Partners taken any steps to determine how many uh, FTX customer creditors are would be interested in continuing to uh, trade on the exchange following a sale or reorganization? I don't know how we would do that without contacting those customers. We, we have um, evaluated the historical trading volumes of those customers, um, and we've provided that information on a no-names basis with the counterparties, um, which is why they're very interested in engaging in this transaction. And whether or not those customers ultimately end up continuing to trade on an FTX platform, if it's reorganized or sold, uh, remains to be seen because it's up to that customer, right? That's correct. And whether or not that customer's name becomes public may have no impact at all on whether that customer decides to continue to trade on an FTX platform, whether it's sold or reorganized, correct? Um, I think that's a correct statement, but I don't think that's the relevant question for whether the uh, counterparties see value in being able to contact that customer specifically. Because there's the possibility that that customer will continue to trade on the FTX platform if it's reorganized or sold, right? You lost me. Isn't the, isn't the reason the counterparties see value in the names of the customers because they <coughs> anticipate that those customers will continue to trade on FTX's platform if it's sold or reorganized? Is that accurate? I think that's accurate, yes. 
since June, has any third party offered to purchase a list of the names, just the names of FTX's customer creditors on a standalone basis? We did have a at least one proposal for that type of structure. Yeah. How much does that party offer for just the list of customer names? No addresses, no anything else, just the customer name. I object, Your Honor. Again, this is an ongoing sale process. The bidders are clearly listening to this hearing. I, I don't, I, the, the, the question here, again, is this an argument is about is there value? It's not the quantum of value. Sustained. Have you attached a monetary value to the names, the list of customer names of FTX? No. No further questions. Thank you. Anyone else wish to cross? <coughs> For the record, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Um, just a few questions, Mr. Kofsky. Um, <coughs> so when do you anticipate the sale process that you're currently conducting, when do you anticipate that that will be at completion? I don't have a definitive date for you. I wish I did. Um, as I said, they're very complicated transactions and we're, we're um, engaging in multiple conversations with parties every day on, on the terms and the structure. I am optimistic that we will um, have either a um, plan for a reorganized exchange or a partnership agreement or a stalking horse for a sale um, on or prior to the December 16th milestone date. So I think you've talked about three possibilities. One is a outright sale of the customer names is per, perhaps either as standalone or perhaps as a wider deal. That's one. Um, reorganizing the exchanges <coughs> with a partner or or the debtors. Number three, the debtors just reorganizing the exchanges on their own. Is that is that is that? I think that's fair. Okay. Sure. In all. Are there any of those scenarios in which, uh, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that, let's, let's take it one piece at a time, the, the outright sale. Um, let's say a sale takes place and, it's at, and as part of that sale the customer names are sold. Would you anticipate that the buyer <coughs> would ask as part of that transaction that the customer names remain sealed in the bankruptcy case? I would expect that they would, yes. So let's take the second scenario where um, it's not a sale, but the plat but there is a reorganization where the debtors pair <coughs> uh, with a partner to reorganize the platforms. In that situation, would you anticipate that the debtor and the partner would want the customer names to remain sealed in the bankruptcy case? I, I can't speak for them, but I would expect that they would, yes. And then in a situation where there's no partner, it's just the debtor, they're reorganizing, they're going to do a, a second launch or whatever you 
which to call it of the platform, would you anticipate that that would again want to continue to have the customer name sealed even after the effective date of the plan? I would think that the value of the customers to the exchange would remain um, valuable even after the conclusion of the case, yes. Do you see any situation in which the debtors would not be seeking to permanently have the customer names redacted? I can only speak from my perspective as the banker trying to maximize the value of the debtor's assets. I, I can't speak to the legal issues. Um, from my perspective, the value of the identities of the customers will remain. Um, and regardless of whether there's a reorganized exchange or a sale uh, or a partnership, the reorganized exchange, the new exchange in any shape or form would value, would place significant value on maintaining the confidential nature of their customers. <coughs> no further questions. Thank you. Anyone else? Mr. Cross. Redirect. <coughs> uh, no redirect, Your Honor. No further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cross. You may step down. Thank you. May it please the court, I think we're prepared to uh, proceed to argument. Let me see if any of the other parties have witnesses. No witnesses? Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Again, Brian Gluckstein, Sullivan and Cromwell for the debtors. <clears throat> uh, by this motion, Your Honor, the debtors and the committee are jointly seeking to further extend the period by which customer names and addresses, including both individual and institutional customer names and addresses, should be redacted from public filings in these cases unless voluntarily disclosed by the customer pursuant to Section 107B1 of the Bankruptcy Code. As the Court is aware, it is determined that Your Honor has determined at two prior hearings based on uncontroverted evidence from Mr. Kakovsky, the debtor's investment banker leading the effort to monetize the debtor's exchange assets, that the debtor's customer lists have value and are entitled to protection under Section 107B1. We submit, Your Honor, that nothing has changed. In fact, Mr. Kowski today again testified and reaffirmed his views that the customer lists have value. And he went further, explaining that the debtors are now in a position to hopefully actually realize that value, and detailed, in his view, the very significant elements of the bids that the, that the debtors have in, have in hand and have received uh, are rely on the fact that they get exclusive access to the customer lists, names, and information, and that that is of critical importance to the bidders. Mr. Kofke testified the debtors are in a very advanced process, uh, whereby they're obtaining and evaluating these proposals, each one that includes the potential onboarding of the debtors' customers to another platform. There is unquestionably, based on Mr. Kofke's testimony, value that would qualify these uh, customer lists, names, and addresses as confidentially sensitive information pursuant to Section 107. The value of these proposals can only be realized if the requested relief is granted and the debtors are permitted to maintain the confidentiality of the entirety of the debtors' customer list. 
As a practical matter, the names and addresses of the debtor's individual customers are already permanently sealed uh, in accordance with the court's order dated January, uh, June 15, 2023, pursuant to Section 107C of the Bankruptcy Code. That order is being appealed. The sealing of all names and addresses, including those of institutional customers, is necessary to facilitate the transactions currently under discussion. As Mr. Kofsky testified, the potential purchasers will not pay the same value for customers who could be acquired on their own because competitors or the potential bidders could access the FTX customer list independent of this transaction process. The conclusion of the testimony today, as before, is that a critical component of the strategy to monetize the debtor's assets is the continued confidentiality of the debtor's customer list. This view is now bolstered by the testimony that the debtors have live proposals that they are pursuing uh, to confirm this fact. Your Honor, in previous rulings, has determined that the FTX debtors' customer lists are protected by Section 107B as confidential commercial information and as a trade secret. Nothing has changed about the nature of confidentiality of the debtors' customer list since June, when we were last here on this issue, and we submit they remain so protected under the applicable legal standard. The debtors are now finally in a position to realize real value from the customer list and exchange assets in significant part because the customer names and addresses have been kept confidential to date. The debtors should be permitted time to complete that process. It is not clear at this point, as Mr. Kofsky testified, when and whether the disposition of the customer information will take place before or in connection with the plan process. As Mr. Kofsky also testified, the debtors do expect to have concluded at least the current sale process prior to the filing of the amended plan disclosure statement in December. Guided by the Court's prior rulings, the movements have only requested at this time to formally extend the protection of redacting all customer names for an additional three months for entry of this order with all rights reserved. And Ms. Sarkazian, in her uh, questioning this morning, raised the possibility, Mr. Kofsky acknowledged, if we actually move forward with a transaction, we are likely to need to seek further relief from the court. But at this time, we do not know whether a transaction will be consummated uh, or, or sought to be brought forward for approval. There are scenarios, such as a liquidation, a full liquidation of the debtor, where there is no continuing exchange, where this issue might resolve itself. But where we stand today is in the middle of a sale process. And what we are asking from the court is the continued protection to allow the debtors to complete that process. Neither the U.S. trustee nor the media objectors have offered anything new in opposition to the relief requested under Section 107B. In their papers, both simply incorporate prior recycled arguments which have been disproved by Mr. Kosky's testimony. <coughs> the objectors continue to rely on the general principles of the right of public access to records and bankruptcy disclosure, but once again do not provide any evidence of specific harm that is being suffered that requires the disclosure of institutional names and addresses immediately, nor do they recognize the court's role in modifying at those requirements as appropriate for cause shown. As the court and the parties in interest have been able to observe, the debtors have been able to efficiently and completely administer these Chapter 11 cases while continuing to redact customer names 
and preserving the integrity of the customer list. Notices have been sent, pleadings served, claims bar date procedures established, claims have been filed, the bar date has now passed, all within the parameters of the relief obtained in the court's prior orders and subject to the type of relief that we're requesting be extended today. As we addressed in our reply papers, any concerns that was raised in this round of briefing by the U.S. Trustee with respect to claims objection notices, uh, we submit are unfounded since the debtors have proposed to provide customized notices to any party who is the subject of a claims objection, either through an omnibus motion or otherwise. All creditors will continue to receive appropriate notices on all issues, including claims objections, like all matters we have noticed to date in these cases. We submit, Your Honor, there's no basis for the court to call, carve out selective portions of the debtor's customers from the redaction order, as suggested by certain of the arguments and objections. As Mr. Kopsky's testimony, again, was clear, it is the totality of the customer list, the names and the addresses, and the ability for a bidder and a purchaser who is offering to provide value to the estate. The value that they see is the ability to have exclusive access to the customer list to be able to solicit those customers without worrying whether competitors have access to that list and are doing the exact same thing. That is a large portion, as Mr. Costa testified this morning, of the value that's created here. Finally, Your Honor, I note that with the debtor's reply brief um, that we filed at docket uh, 3311, we filed a revised form of order uh, with respect to this motion, which addressed comments received uh, and the objections to the form of order that had been interposed by the United States trustee. So we understand, at least as to the form of order, um, those objections are resolved. Uh, we submit, Your Honor, that the objections to the continued redaction of the customer names and addresses uh, pursuant to Section 107B should be overruled and the motion granted. Uh, happy to answer any questions. No questions. Thank you, Mr. Cox. Thank you. Ms. Townsend? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm Support. Here. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the committee. Just, just one minute. Um, as a co-movement um, with the debtors on this motion, we obviously support um, all the arguments Mr. Gluckstein just made. But I did want to just add, Your Honor, the committee from the very start of these cases has, has been advocating for the process that Mr. Kopsky described. Um, Mr. Kopsky made quite clear the value inherent in the debtor's customer list. And we believe, as the committee, that there is a significant opportunity to maximize recoveries from the process that, that Mr. Kopsky described. Um, the process should not be jeopardized at this time, Your Honor. We're at a critical juncture, um, and disclosure of the list, as you heard, would, in our view, jeopardize that process. So we would ask that the motion be granted. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, Mr. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm, I'll be brief. We're on. We're here today on debtors' motion, um, so that the court can determine whether debtors have demonstrated that they're entitled to continue to redact the names of all of FTX's customers, creditors that are um, from all filings in this case for an additional 90 days pursuant to Section 107B. I know there's been some discussion about a potential additional relief, but that's not an issue that's before the court today. Uh, before I address that issue, I should, I think, note for the record, though it's already been alluded to that my clients, media interveners, have objected and continue to object to the court's um, 
as this court well knows, to uh, the redaction of the names of FTX's customer creditors under both Section 107B and 107C. We have appealed the court's June 15th order authorizing redaction under those provisions on the showing that was made by the debtors and the official committee back in June. Um, that is currently pending before the district court. So we understand uh, well that this court previously ruled under Section 107B that the customer creditor names at issue constitute a trade secret and can continue to be redacted uh, while the debtors continue to seek how they're going to come out of these bankruptcies. We're not attempting to relitigate that issue or that conclusion today. It's currently up on appeal, um, but we would be remiss if we did not object to debtors' requests for further, and the official committee's request for a further extension for another 90 days of the redaction deadline, really, as Mr. Gluckstein already referred to, for practical purposes for the customers, creditors that are entities only. Um, so without waiving any of our objections or arguments, with respect to the court's June 15th order, I will um, just limit my argument to that narrow issue, which is the only one currently before the court today. As the court knows, debtors bear the burden of demonstrating with admissible evidence that the names of all of their customer creditors that are entities fall within the scope of Section 107B, which is a narrow statutory exception to public disclosure in bankruptcy proceedings. Debtors have offered the testimony of their fact witness, Mr. Kofsky, again, as their sole evidentiary basis for seeking to extend the redaction period for an additional 90 days. Um, as he did back in January and again in June, Mr. Kofsky has testified in effect uh, that um, the debtors are still continuing to explore potential valuation of their assets and that the names of FTX customers uh, in his view, are a source of, of, of value or have value. Um, we previously argued that, uh, I believe the, the term was quantum, the quantum of value is relevant, um, but to the extent it, it isn't relevant, um, I think I would note a, a couple of things. Mr. Kopsky testified today um, that the, the names, I think it's fair to say the names of these entities are viewed by purchasers or potential purchasers or counterparties as having potential value because there is an existing customer base. So if they're looking to purchase the company as a whole, um, they're looking to potentially utilize that customer base moving forward. We don't know how many of these customers, and Mr. Kofsky couldn't tell us how many of these uh, it's nine million total customers, some smaller subset of that that are entities. How many of those are um, exclusive to FTX? That's an issue that came up back in June. We don't know if some of these customers are already parties of some of the, or already customers rather, of some of the counterparties that Mr. Kofsky has engaged in discussions with. We also don't know what specific value is being attributed to the customer names alone. Um, as opposed to some larger part of, um, uh, as opposed to the, the sort of exchanges as a whole. Um, Mr. Kofsky testified that he hasn't taken any steps to determine or value the customer list standing alone since, since June. Um, so we don't, uh, we, the media interveners would take the position, Your Honor, that uh, the motion to extend the redaction deadline um, should be denied. Uh, 
to the extent the court um, seeks to extend the redaction deadline, we would um, urge the court to extend it again only for 90 days. That's the relief that's been requested. It appears based on Mr. Kofsky's testimony that uh, there may be less basis for redaction of those names moving forward uh, once a, possibly after December, once a, um, a plan on how uh, the, the uh, debtors will come out of these bankruptcies has been agreed to. Thank you. If there are no further questions. No questions. Thank, Thank you, you, Your Honor. Again, Julia Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Uh, Your Honor, I will be quite short. I'm certainly not going to repeat the arguments that we've made um, on this issue at, at previous hearings. Um, the U.S. Trustee is not taking the position that there is zero value for customer names, but that has to be balanced against the right of the public under both bankruptcy law and federal law generally to have for the public to have access to bankruptcy court filings. And here, you know, there is no customer list that's on file. There's no document called a customer list that's been filed in these cases. I think when the debtors and others refer to customer list, what they mean is, well, we have the creditor matrix. Well, the creditor matrix also has creditors on it that are not customers, and you can't tell when looking at it who's who necessarily, but I believe the, the view of the debtors would be, well, the overall, and I think I, they've said this, well, the vast majority of our creditors are customers, so effectively it's like a customer list. And then similarly for you know the schedules, the debtor's schedule, Schedule F, uh, includes customers. It also includes non-customers who are their unsecured creditors. So that's what we're talking about, and these are documents that are effectively, I mean, they're available to the public, but in highly redacted form. And, you know, we're talking again about extending this another 90 days. And obviously, the United States trustee is not advocating for this to be a permanent sealing, uh, far from the case. We think it should not be sealed at all. However, I think we shouldn't kid ourselves. This, you know, based on Mr. Kofsky's testimony, he couldn't come up with a scenario where it would not be ultimately um, the debtor's request or the request of a purchaser to have the names permanently sealed. Um, if, the, if, if, if these names are going to be sold, the purchaser is going to ask for permanent sealing. If, if the debtor reorganizes and they're going to go ahead with the platform, you know, Mr. Kofsky testified, you know, again, he says, I'm not the debtor, but he would anticipate that that would be the request. Um, Mr. Blutstein, I think the only scenario he came up with was, well, if there was a total liquidation, there's no sale, there's no reorganization, or we're just liquidating everything, but potentially in that instance, they would not ask for a permanent ceiling. But that's the only situation which, from everything I've heard, doesn't sound like what's going to happen in this case. And of course, nobody wants that to happen in this case. So this is, we're doing well, it in I think you could also have days. a scenario where all this, the sale falls through. None of these three counterparties decide to buy it. And well, the debtors decide not to restart the platform. That would be a, and I assume that would then be a liquidation. That's not, that's not necessarily a liquidation. They could, they could reorganize without restarting the platform. Okay. I, I see the point you're on. Yes, if they were not going to restart the platform, I'm not sure where the debtor's business would be otherwise, but... Um, Sure, I guess there are some scenarios that 
based on what debtors council has said they believe is going to happen it sounds likely that the scenarios will be one in which somebody will be asking for this to be a permanent ceiling but i understand that that's not the issue before your honor and your honor's not being asked to permanently seal this but our concern is it's again we are coming up on the one year anniversary so this information has been sealed for a year or well with respect to the schedules from the time they were filed in march um so you know i i guess there's some slim possibility at some point that the that the redactions will no longer be requested um but you know the u.s trustee's concern is it's been a very long time since they've been sealed and it looks likely that it's it's going to continue and potentially be be permanent um so but if a customer list has value and the debtors are trying to sell it and they do sell it it still has value to the purchaser so of course they're going to ask for permanent sealing of the customer because they don't want to just buy it and then say okay here's everybody who's on customer list that doesn't do any good for the purchaser right i mean that's my understanding i was just trying to make the point in cross-examining the witness that you know while this is being done in 90-day increments there's a good likelihood that this is ultimately that someone is ultimately going to ask that it be a permanent ceiling um and that may or may not be appropriate when that comes up yes thank you your honor um the only other thing i have to say is um with respect to the form of order that mr gluckstein is correct that the changes that they made do resolve the u.s trustees issues with the form of order okay thank you thank you your honor all right mr gluckstein just very briefly your honor again brian gluckstein for the debtors um Council for the Media Objectors went through a few points about we don't know if these customers are exclusive to FDX or we don't know if they're going to stay with the exchange. Of course, from the estate's perspective, and Mr. Kofsky was clear on this, what matters to us is whether a buyer is willing to ascribe value to the opportunity to have exclusive access to that list such that they pay us for it. And if they are, from the estate's perspective, we've realized the value of that asset. Whether those customers ultimately do or don't stay on the reorganized exchange or on the acquirer's exchange, that's all presumably being priced. The risk of that's being priced into the purchase price that Mr. Kofsky is negotiating uh, with the potential bidders. So from the estate's perspective, we submit, Your Honor, the question before the court is whether there, these are, this is confidentially sensitive information that, where there's, such, there's value to the estate and the uncontroverted testimony is that there is. Uh, Mr. Kosky was also clear that there's certainly more value uh, with these lists, uh, you know, these customer names and addresses being available to the buyers than without. In fact, I think his, his testimony was that it was a very significant element of the consideration of the bids that we've received. Um, with respect to the potential permanent ceiling, of course, we've taken this in incremental steps with guidance from Your Honor when we, when we started this in the spring to be sure that we were uh, proceeding methodically. Um, we have been trying to balance the need for public disclosure with uh, the need to maximize the value of assets of our estate. Um, as Mr. Kazian acknowledges, we have filed uh, non-customer information publicly on the docket. Um, we have, there's been a lot of effort to, to reconcile those efforts, with, again, with guidance from the court, um, and, and the debtor will continue to do that. Um, if, if there is a transaction, yes, we are likely to be before your honor 
uh, needing further relief on this, as I, as I acknowledge. Nobody's hiding from that fact. Um, but we have not come forward to ask for permanent sealing, and of course that's a different question. As Your Honor says, it may or may not be appropriate when that's before you. But the question today is, is there sufficient value, is, there, is this qualified for protection, continued protection, the court has twice found that, it, that, that, these, that this information qualifies for protection. Have we, have we carried our burden that we should be able to benefit from continued protection to allow the debtor to complete the ongoing sale process and to see if there is a transaction where value can be realized from this customer information in a way that we believe uh, delivers additional value to our creditors, maximizing the value of the estate, which of course we are trying to do. So. We would ask, Your Honor, that the motion be granted and that the remaining objections be overruled. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, well, I, I do recall at the beginning when this first came up, I suggested the 90 days because we didn't know whether it had value at that time. Uh, but once again, uh, the uncontroverted evidence presented today is that it does have some value. And the, and the evidence today was even stronger than it's been in the past two hearings. Um, I now know that there are at least three parties who are interested in purchasing um, the asset, the platform, and you know, just as a matter of common sense, a platform without customers is nothing. So it has to have value. The customer list has to have value. And these customers have said, we think there's value to it, and we, we want to make sure that this uh, remains sealed so that uh, when we buy it, we have something to work with. Um, and that's uncontroverted. Um, the objecting parties have, have still not brought forward any uh, witness who can dispute what Mr. Kofsky has testified to. Um, so I continue to find that uh, 107B is appropriate, that the customer list constitutes confidential commercial information and trade secret, um, that it has value, that the debtors have a right to try to sell it or to reorganize around the platform and uh, continue to operate that platform, and it needs to have value if it does. And if the customer list is disclosed, um, it would lose a lot of value, obviously. On the issue of the quantum of the value, that doesn't matter. Nothing in 107B says it has to have a certain level of value before you decide whether or not um, it should be protected. Uh, it just says if it's commercial, confidential information, or a trade secret, and it is, and it has value doesn't matter at this point what that value is because it has value. So for those reasons, I'll overrule the objections. I will approve the order for an additional 90 days. With that said, is there some way to avoid another one of these hearings in 90 days where we don't have to go through and hear the same testimony again? Um, it, it, Ms. Townsend, you're, you did appeal the 107B issue, correct? And Ms. Sarkeesian, have you also appealed that issue? Uh, Your Honor, uh, our office did file a notice of appeal, but we withdrew it. Okay. Um, well, that complicates it. I was hoping that there was a, it was on appeal and you could just re reserve your rights in the future if, unless some additional information <laughs> comes open or you, you find a witness who can come in and testify contrary. But um, let's see if you can – I'll let the parties talk it out and see if there's some way to resolve that issue. Mr. Glexton. Yes, Your Honor. Um, we, we, we certainly agree. Um, we tried to do that in advance of this hearing. Uh, the parties wanted the ability to cross – the, the objectors wanted the ability to cross-examine Mr. Kofsky. Um, but we certainly agree that um, 
we would welcome you know the opportunity to try to have parties reserve rights, uh, but without um, needing to um, continue to have evidence you're hearing in front of your honor. But we'll, we'll talk further with the objector. Okay, thank you. All right. With that, can we move to the next issue? Yeah, I think for the uh, the last matter going forward today, the next item in the agenda, I'll turn over to Ms. Brown. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the court. Still morning. Kim it is still morning. I had to double check that. Yeah. I'm with you there. Um, so may it please the court, Kim Brown from Landis Rath and Cobb appearing today on behalf of the debtors. Your Honor, this brings us to item number 12 on the agenda, which is the debtor's motion requesting relief from certain of the default provisions contained in Bankruptcy Rule 3007 and Local Rule 3001 to enable the debtors to implement an efficient and expedition claim objection process in these unquestionably large, unique, and complex Chapter 11 cases. As Mr. Diederich explained during this case update, it is a primary goal that is shared, as you heard, from both the committee and the ad hoc committee to return value to creditors as soon as possible in these cases. To that end, the debtors filed this motion seeking relief from certain of the default provisions to enable them to create a workable solution that provides for an expeditious review and process to object to claims. Given the sheer volume of claims that likely will need to be reconciled and potentially objected to in these cases, the debtors submit that there is cause and it is in the interest of justice to provide relief that would authorize the debtors to one, file more than three omnibus claim objections a month, two, exceed the 100 claim limit per omnibus objection, and three, forego having to identify every conceivable basis to object to a claim on substantive grounds, particularly when the debtors believe that many can be um, disallowed on certain threshold substantive issues. The U.S. trustee has argued that this court lacks authority to modify the default rules governing omnibus claim objections. However, both the applicable bankruptcy rules and the local rules provide this court with clear discretion to approve the debtor's request. Specifically, Bankruptcy Rule 3007C states, and I'll quote, unless the court orders otherwise, unless otherwise ordered by the court, or permitted by subdivision D, objections to more than one claim shall not be joined in a single objection. Subdivision D provides that an omnibus claim objection may include 100 claims. The unless otherwise ordered by the court proviso clarifies that this court may modify Bankruptcy Rule 3007, including subpart D that sets a 100 claim limit to objections. But even if, for some reason, the court were inclined to um, go with the U.S. trustee's position that Bankruptcy Rule 3007 does not provide such discretion, Local Rule 3007-1 expressly states that to the extent that there is any inconsistency with Bankruptcy Rule 3007 on the one hand and Local Rule 3007-1 on the other hand, the local rules govern omnibus claim objections. Local Rule 3001-F2 
expressly authorizes this court to provide relief from the default limit on the number of claims that can be included in an omnibus substantive claim objection for costs. Overarching all of these rules, as acknowledged by the Office of the United States Trustee in its objection, is Local Rule 1001C, which provides that the court has discretion to modify the local rules in the interest of justice. As such, the debtors submit that this court has ample authority to provide the relief requested by the debtors. Here, ample cause exists for the court to exercise its discretion to allow the debtors to implement a workable claims objection process that will further the interest of justice. Absent the relief requested, it could take years, if not decades, to file, let alone diligence and prosecute claims to conclusion. If they have to do separate claims objections to the tens of thousands of claims that are likely to be in dispute in these cases. And if parties who are filing claim objections are required to identify every conceivable substantive ground for objection to claim, it would balloon the time that it would take to diligence and ultimately file those claims objections, which in turn would create an astronomical additional cost on top of the cost just to reconcile the claims in the first instance. This would be obvious to the detriment to the creditors and the holders of allowed claims who share, I'm sure, in the debtors, the committees, and the ad hoc committee's goal of getting value returned as soon as possible to these creditors. This kind of delay, it's too expensive, it's too untenable, and it's obviously detrimental to the debtors' estates and the goals to achieve their paths forward. By contrast, granting the relief requested will further the interest of justice by providing for the expeditious and efficient prosecution of claims and in turn help achieve the goal shared by all parties in interest to provide an expedition distribution to holders of allowed claims for their recovery. Now the U.S. Trustee has also raised additional concerns that granting the relief requested will somehow sow confusion among creditors or shift the evidentiary burden, but those concerns are misguided. First, as Mr. Gluckstein explained in connection with the creditor sealing motion, it is the debtors' intent, as it happens in many large Chapter 11 cases, that when an omnibus claim objection is filed, the debtors will file a full copy of the objection on the docket and they will serve each impacted creditor with an exhibit that is customized that will identify just the claims that relate to that creditor that are subject to that claim objection. So there will be no confusion. The creditors will not have to sift through multiple exhibits to determine if a single objection applies to them. It will be clear from the start. Additionally, there's nothing in the procedures or the relief that we've requested that by any means shifts the burden from any of the parties. The debtors agree. A properly filed and timely filed proof of claim is prima facie evidence that the claim is valid. It is the burden that shifts to the objecting party to provide affirmative evidence 
that the claim should be disallowed for the basis identified in the objection. As I just explained, the creditor is going to be served with this objection. It is going to include an exhibit that is customized to them and will explicitly outline what the basis of the objection is. Can you explain how that's going to work, the customization? Sure. So think about it as to how we did it with respect to the claims procedures. So A&M and Kroll worked together so that when proofs of claims were sent out to the creditors, they were individualized where it identified what the creditor's claim was, what was the scheduled claim amount. So in this situation, it would be no different. It would be A&M and Kroll working together. They're going to take the master exhibit list that would be in the form that's prescribed by Local 3007-1. It outlines exactly what the exhibits must look like. We have not sought any relief with respect to deviating from the requirements and the rules as to what the exhibits must be. And then they will effectively create custom exhibits that will remove all of the other claimants except for those who are being served with the objection and are impacted by that specific claim objection. So is the customer or the claimant going to get a thousand-page spreadsheet with everything redacted out except their name? No. No, that is certainly not what we were intending to do. The goal here for the debtors and shared by, you know, we've worked hand-in-hand with the committees to come up with a process that we thought would be efficient, expeditious, and as easy as possible on the creditors. So they will only have, you know, one, two, three rules depending upon how many claims are subject to their objection. And that's all that they'll see on their exhibit. Now, should they be inclined to want to see all of the claims that were also subject to that objection, they'll have the ability to access that on the bankruptcy docket. And granted, you know, the customer information consistent with Your Honor's ruling today, that will be redacted. But they would still see, you know, there were X number of claims that were objected to on late-filed basis similar to, you know, whatever their claim is. And I'm just using late-filed as an example. Okay. So what happens if you file an objection with a threshold issue and your objection gets overruled? What happens then? That's right. So assuming that this is a, well, there will need to be further diligence on both of the part, well, on the part of the debtors and their professionals to the extent the committee is weighing in on certain claims. You know, there will be a dialogue there. And after further diligence, there would be a later-filed objection that, again, would be customized so the creditor can see, okay, this claim objection applies to me. Here's the basis for the objection. And then we would try to obviously work with the parties to, and it goes for the initial objections that were filed too. You know, debtors are always trying to work with the parties to try to resolve any issues on a consensual basis to the extent that we can. And what are we going to do with, I want to make sure that pro se customers know that if they get a claim objection, and many of these people are overseas, that they have the right to appear by Zoom. They don't have to be here in person. Will that be in the notice as well? We can certainly add that into the notice, Your Honor. 
Now, certainly, sure. if, they, if you have a claimant who's got a billion dollars of Bitcoin on the platform and he hires an attorney, that's a different story. But you know, people who are overseas and have a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars or even you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars that they've invested on the platform, and they're going to appear pro se, I want them to, to know clearly that they do not have to appear in court to, to object, to uh, respond to the objection. Certainly, and that's, and that's consistent with what you know, we've generally done um, with respect to the various notices that we've sent. So with respect to the bar date notice, you know, this is a, a unique case. Um, the bar date notice, unlike any other bar date notice we've ever done, included at the very top, before you even got to the case caption, that you should read this. This may impact your rights. Um, and I would think and propose that where we have that in the notice for the claim objection, that we would also um, provide clear guidance that you know, it's unnecessary for you to appear um, if you are a pro se claimant um, in person in court and it could be handled uh, okay. through a virtual hearing. All right. Okay. And then, Your Honor, with respect to. Sorry, I lost my train of thought for a moment. Just give me one minute. So that brings me to you know, what the U.S. trustee seems to be proceeding with here is really a policy position that they're pressing. Regardless of, an, regardless of the unique circumstances of these cases and the need for a workable solution to the claims procedures. Um, what we've tried to achieve here and balanced and worked hard with both the committee and the ad hoc committee is for this to be something that is efficient, expeditious, and it meets everyone's goals of returning value to creditors. And the last point that I'll make which probably is the most important, there's not been a single party with an economic interest or who would be subject to the procedures and the relief that we've requested that has objected or otherwise responded to the motion. The only party who has raised the concern is the Office of the United States Trustee. Both the committee and the ad hoc committee support the relief that we've requested. So unless your honor has any other questions, I will cede the podium to those who are now stated like to speak. Okay, thank you, no questions. You're welcome. Good morning, Your Honor. <clears throat> For the record, Robert Poppity from Young, Conaway, Sargon, and Taylor. As Ms. Brown said, um, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors does support the relief requested. Um, we do appreciate the United States Trustee's concerns, Your Honor. We did have a conversation with them a number of weeks ago when the motion was filed about what the committee's position was on the relief requested. Uh, much of that conversation focused on noticing issues, making sure creditors were getting appropriate notice. Um, our conversations with the debtor um, we're very much consistent with the colloquy you just had with Ms. Brown in terms of how the notices are going to work, which in my experience is exactly how they would work in a case of this size, where you're going to have a customized notice. The creditors don't have to scroll through dozens of pages, if not hundreds of pages, to find their particular claim. And so we're very comfortable with all of that. We're also very comfortable with, I think, the point that Your Honor and Ms. Brown just demonstrated that if there's things that need to be in the notice about like Zoom hearings and other things, we're comfortable that it can be done that way. Um, again, we appreciate where the United States trustee is coming from, um, but ultimately this is a large case. There's thousands of claims, and ultimately parties do have to read, their, read the notices. The key from our experience is being very clear in those notices about what the expectations are. What are the response deadlines? How is the hearing going to go? Making sure that notice is set up in a way that parties can very easily find their claims and not have to sift through um, dozens of pages. So we're, we're very comfortable with that, and we think that's key here. Um, 
We also think we have to be flexible, as the debtors have said. This is a very large case. There are any number of claims. While our local rules um, do modify the bankruptcy rules, which, by the way, we do think is, is, is appropriate. Uh, it's very clear that the local rules um, have made modifications to the bankruptcy rules. I'd like to think that um, the reason the local rules are drafted in the way they are is through years of experience of practitioners in this district um, trying to make sure that the claims process works the way it should, efficient, making sure creditors are getting appropriate notice. But at the same time, it's very clear that those local rules can be modified in the interest of justice. And as your honor, and I think most folks in the courtroom know, oftentimes in these larger cases, they are modified to allow for more objections per month, more claims per objection and such. So we think we have to be flexible here. Um, and again, while we appreciate the United States trustees' concern, we're just not prepared to go to a place right now where the parade of horribles that they've identified in their papers is going to play out. We obviously have the opportunity to seek to modify those rules, as do the debtors, if ultimately we find out that they're not working for this case. And of course, Your Honor has the opportunity and every ability to police his docket to the extent that they're, um, you know, it becomes unwieldy or there's any abuse of the so-called one bite at the apple rule if that is lifted in this particular case. So um, as Ms. Brown said, the committee does uh, support the relief requested, Your Honor. And if you have any questions, please let me know. Okay, no questions, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, and for the record, Matthew Hardy from Morris Nichols Arston Tunnel on behalf of the Ad Hoc Committee would echo the comments of the official committee we support the relief. Um, as previewed in the comments about the plan support agreement up front and the progress was made, an issue in this case is going to be claims administration and the efficient administration of claims. Um, a focus of our committee since day one has been returning property to customers for its value as soon as possible. And uh, as the debtors alluded to there in the presentation, chopping as much wood on claims administration in advance of the effective date will enable that. We are supportive of a process that's efficient particularly with the guardrails the debtors put up here and the additional guardrail that Your Honor helpfully suggested, um, making it known to creditors their rights and their ability to appear and advocate for their rights without having to appear in Delaware in person. So the ad hoc committee is supportive. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Anyone else? Ms. Sarkeesian? Good morning, Your Honor. Jonathan Lipsy on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Uh, the U.S. Trustee opposes the motion. Uh, you know, I heard a lot about guardrails here. The motion, as articulated, has no cap whatsoever on the number of creditors. The local rule and the bankruptcy rules have it at 100. I don't think there's any inconsistency between the two, you know, despite what Ms. Brown said. The local rules track the bankruptcy rules. That's number one. But the stress here is, and, and they have unfettered rights to go after uh, non-substantive claims. This is only as to the substantive claims. Our opposition is two-pronged. First of all, there's the issue on the unlimited monthly omnibus claims. There's no limit whatsoever. They could file. 10, 100, 1,000 a month. And there's no limit as to the number of creditors. It could be 100, 1,000, 10,000. That, notwithstanding what Ms. Brown said, and the, 
court's questions concerning how the notice is going to be sent out, that's, without a cap, that is an unwieldy docket situation for the court and for all the parties in interest. Notwithstanding that, the real problem that the U.S. trustee has with the motion is on the substantive issues. And as we articulated in our opposition, the way the motion is couched and the relief sought is they have multiple bites at the apple. They could take a first bite, lose, come back another time, come back a third time, come back a fourth time, ad infinitum. The way the relief as articulated is right now. And that, in the context of this case, where creditors, customers have been, by everybody's account, victimized by the pre-petition actions, the egregious fraud involved in this case, to submit them, and as Your Honor pointed out, you've got pro se, worldwide customers and creditors who would have to come in multiple times, lawyer up multiple times, to fight different objections on different grounds. And that cuts against transparency, due process, and the way the delicate balance of claims objection litigation is articulated in the Code and the Rules, where you're the creditor, you file your proof of claim, prima facie evidence as to amount and validity, and it becomes the objector, in this case the debtor's burden, to come forth with some kind of evidence. And that means all the evidence, all of the substantive grounds. Under what the debtors propose, they don't have to do that. They can keep coming back. The argument that everybody wants this case to move fast is actually contrary to what the debtor's asking for, because they can keep coming back. The issue of finality is not served by having these multiple bites. Figure out what the claim objection is, all of the substantive grounds, give it to the debtor, I mean give it to the claimant, and let the litigation process commence. I mean once that happens, it's a contested matter. All discovery is fair game under 9014. You get to take depositions, you get to ask for documents, you get to make requests for admissions, and then you litigate the case. The way it's set up right now, and yes, it's a big complicated case, but the point is get to the finality early. Don't let it drag on and on and on. So I think based on the facts and circumstances of this case, what happened pre-petition, what the creditors and customers have been through, the bottom line is make the debtor, the debtors follow the rules as written, they're set up for a reason, and get the case moving as fast as possible and final as fast as possible. We have 9.5 million customers. If even 10% of those filed claims that are objectionable, how long would that take if they were limited to 300 claim objections per month? That's a good point, Your Honor. It would take a long, long time. Take a decade or more, maybe two decades. Can't do that. Just can't do that. Well, that certainly goes to the docket issue. 
I understand that, Your Honor. But on the substantive issue, there, there's got to be some cap. There, there's not at the moment. Well, on the substantive issues, I mean, we have a lot of, there's a lot of times when litigation, parties file a motion for summary judgment on a threshold issue that they think might resolve the case. And it does. And then it goes to trial. Um, I can see in this scenario where they have threshold issues, as Ms. Brown pointed out, like a late file claim. So they file an objection to a late file claim. In the event I overrule that objection, I would say then the debtor has an obligation to come forward with all substantive objections after that. And then we'll deal with all of them at one time. They can't come back and back and back and back and back. Get one shot. Get their initial threshold objection. If it gets overruled, they get another objection and that's it. One more. And they have to include all the substantive objections. I think that deals with the issue of the serial litigation down the road for these folks. Um, and a lot of these, nobody's going to object. They're going to be disposed of without objection. Um, there'll be some, there'll be some that we can we can deal with those. And if if we end up with ten thousand objections in a month, um, then we'll have to spread them out over a period of time. Um, and we'll deal with them. You know, I can sit here all day and we can go through them one at a time and we can get as many done as we can. Um, but at, at this point, I don't see how I can say to the debtors, you can only do 300 per month and you, can and you have to put every single possible objection in, which then requires these claimants to come in and respond to that, which is going to be a burden on them too. Um, where there might be a simple way to dispose of the issue up front. So, for those of you, I didn't give um, Ms. Brown a chance to respond to you, but um, for these reasons, I think I'm going to overrule the objection, but I'm going to put those limitations on it. One. Yes, go ahead. Apologies. Kim Brown again, Your Honor. So I would just like to clarify with respect to the multiple bites at the apple. I certainly appreciate when you're, what your honor's coming from. Um, I just want to distinguish between non-substantive claims objections, which are not limited in having to file. Like you can file late file, duplicate, um, no supporting docs. Like those, those objections are deemed non-substantive under the rule, and there's no limitation with respect to those. Um, and perhaps the example that I was providing for you in the connection with, you know, knocking out one of the others was, was uh, not the best for this particular scenario. What, what I think we would be, and understand your honor, wanting to ensure we're not taking multiple bites of the apple over, over a substantive objection. But if we can knock out a substantive, I'd ask if we could have at least two bites on a substantive objection with one carve out. So the substantive objection, so let's say our initial threshold issue, oftentimes, relates to we have no evidence in our books and records. So that would be the initial one that we'd try to you know, knock off of the first case. And if we can get that summarily dismissed, great. If we can't, then on the second objection, then we have to come forward. We will continue our diligence, everything we need to do, and bring forth every single potential substantive objection then. But it would be exclusive of the non-substantive objections 
world. And the only caveat I, I would ask that we can do a carve out for relates to um, know your customer guidelines. So as your honor may recall in our bar date process, not only do customers need to file a valid bar date, um, a valid claim, but they also need to provide valid know your customer guidelines. You know, the crypto industry um, has known for there being some players, not all, that operate a little shady. And so it was imperative to the debtors that there were folks who were not utilizing the claims process, either through selling their claim or otherwise, to launder money or otherwise commit bad acts. And so knowing, knowing your customer is very important. What I understand is that the plan is going to have certain deadlines for the know your customer um, information to be provided. And I think this know your customer issue, it's, 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 it's novel. This isn't something that has come up in a lot of the bankruptcy cases. And you know, we had done some digging but did not find anything as to whether an objection related to failure to meet know your customer guidelines would either be a non-substantive objection. Um, it's certainly not identified in the local rules as what can be a non-substantive objection. Um, but at the same time, we'd like to move forward with the substantive pieces and getting the substantive claims knocked out as, po as soon as possible. But if we're only getting two bites of the apple and then we get to plan confirmation and a creditor fails to provide the requisite know your customer information, we would like to have the flexibility to object later on to disallow the claim because you know whether they're a shady actor or, or what it might be that now that that has been vetted and they have failed to provide that. So if your honor is amenable, we would ask that we get two bites at the apple with respect to a substantive objection uh, exclusive of an objection related to know your customer requirements. What are the two bites for the substantive? You, I so lost me on that one. No problem, sorry. Um, so we would have the opportunity to object to file an initial substantive objection that would try to dismiss it on threshold um, substantive issues like lack of books and records. Um, and then to the Those are non-substantive. Late no, no, file? Uh, no, lack of book and records is actually a substantive objection under the rules. Okay. So it, it's usually one of the easiest ones to knock out, which is why we're like, we believe we can get summarily dismiss the number of these on substantive grounds. But to the extent that, that we were not to prevail on that issue, that we could then come back and file a, a second substantive objection. And that substantive objection would identify every substantive grounds in which um, the debtors have a basis to seek disallowance of a specific claim. Okay. On the issue of it's the know your customer yes. issue, I would suggest looking at, Judge Shanna has a crypto case. Bittrex. Bittrex, yes. Um, and he, in order to receive, in that case they were returning the crypto to, to the place. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case he said, well you have to, there's a form you have to fill out. Kind of a know your customer kind of thing. Uh, if you don't fill it out, you don't get your crypto back. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a separate process from kind of the claim objection process, uh, which might be something you use here. I don't know, but it might be worth taking a look at to see if it's something that is useful. We, we, we certainly will take a look at that, but I know that in our bar date order, we have included this requirement related to you know your customer issues, um, and I'm thinking that perhaps there's a way that we can you know 
implement some provision in the plan that would address the know your customer issue. I just don't want there to be a scenario where we launch our two substantive objections and then we get to a point down the road where the creditor has failed to provide the know your customer information and we are then in a position where we can no longer seek to disallow that claim. Your Honor, Jonathan Lateef, uh, Office of the United States Trustee. And I, I, just to clarify, I think the court is correct because Local Rule 3007-1, subsection D, Romanet 6, it breaks out what substantive and non-substantive is, and it clearly says non-substantive is six is a claim that does not have a basis in the debtor's books and records and does not that is covered as non-substantive in the local rule. So I think the point is they make that objection because it's not substantive and then they go to substantive and they lay it all out just so it's clear. I wanted to point that out. So pulling up the rule. So it's not just that it has no basis in the books and records, but a non-substantive objection also has to have where they have failed to attach, and this is, so you read, a claim that does not have a basis in the debtor's books and records and does not include or attach sufficient information or documentation to constitute prima facie evidence. So while I'm referring to it as a books and records, the, the substantive objection is really a no liability based on the books and records, which is separate and apart from a non-substantive objection where it's in the books and records, we don't have anything, and you didn't attach anything. The rule says what it says. <laughs> okay. so. All right. Um, <clears throat> well, as I said, I am, I'm going to overrule the objection, but I, I do want to put guardrails on this, including that we notify, with the customization of the notice, we notify these folks that they don't have to appear in court if they're objecting or they're responding on a pro se basis, um, that they can appear by Zoom. Um, I will give the debtors the opportunity for two bites. If you have a substantive claim objection that you can bring up front that you think is dispositive, um, you can bring it. If you have a non-substantive claim, you can bring that. But then once either one of those gets overruled, you get one more shot, and that's it. One more bite at the apple. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? We can file a non-substantive objection based on whatever the grounds are. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, you know, you'd batch them by non-substantive, here's all the late files, here's all the duplicates. Um, are you suggesting that with respect to the non-substantive, you want us to include every basis with respect no. to? No, you can, if you have a non-substantive that you think, we can yeah. do what we gotta do. If you have a non-substantive that you think is dispositive, you sure. can bring that. If you have a substantive claim that you think is dispositive, you can bring that. Great. If either one of those gets overruled, you get one more shot at a substantive objection. On the substantive piece. And that's it. Yes. Thank okay. you. And that does not impair us in the event that there is a know your customer issue. Yeah, the know your customer issue, is, is, I think, is a separate issue that 
is it's something that we have to do in this case, given the nature of the business we're involved with here. Certainly, and I'm sure that's something that we can clean up in the planning process. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. I appreciate the clarification. All right. So the parties should meet and confer, come up with a, an appropriate form of order. Mr. Lipsy, did you want to? No. Okay. Um, and we'll get that entered as soon as it gets uploaded. Is the other, um, I didn't ask about, do we have a final version of the order uploaded for the first issue that we talked about this morning? I, know, I did see the black line for the, uh, the change, but I don't know if there was a final one. Um, if it has not already been uploaded, it will be as we speak. Okay. Thank All right. you. All right. Anything else? That's it, Your Honor. Okay. Your Honor, if I could just find out if, if um, counsel for emergent, the emergent debtor is present or on the phone. Madam Spencer. The emergent matter, Your Honor, has been. Has been no, I know, but I wanted to. Okay. Um, Your Honor, we wanted to know, uh, for the record, Julia Christie, on behalf of the U.S. Trustee, we had spoken to <coughs> emergent um, debtors counsel about scheduling a status conference, not on the dip financing motion, but on a different issue, which is um, currently the fee examiner order. It was entered prior to the emergent case being jointly administered with the rest of the. FTX debtors. So um, Morgan Lewis, who's Emergence Counsel, currently is not covered by uh, the fee examiner order. And we would like to have a status conference to discuss that matter. And we wanted to know if we could just add that to, uh, to the next omnibus hearing date. Your Honor, Matthew Ziegler of Morgan Lewis for the Emergent debtor. That is totally fine with us. We're available, I believe it's November 15th, to have that status conference. If that would be okay with your honor? Yeah, unless we have, do we have a, are you guys talking with the PLS folks about rescheduling the oral argument on the motion to dismiss? I want to try and limit the number of hearings if we yeah. can. Uh, thank you, your honor. Adam Landis, uh, Landis having conference with the debtors. Uh, yes, we have been in contact uh, with those parties. Um, they have agreed to the November 15th date, so that should be going forward at that time. November 15th, is that the next omnibus hearing? That is the next omnibus hearing. Okay, then we can add this to the next omnibus as well. Thank you, your honor. Your Honor, while I'm up here, could I give you 30 seconds on the uh, emergent dip motion that was uh, continued from today? Uh, well, it's not on for today. What do we? What do you want to talk about? I, I just <laughs> I, I wanted to give you a status update. Uh, we were unable to uh, surmount the logistical hurdles of having our declarant available today, and as Your Honor will note, the U.S. Trustee has posed some objections. We have resolved objections from FTX and from BlockFi. Um, so we anticipate we're in touch with chambers and we will find a replacement date when our witness can be available okay and That's we would ask your honor if it is at all possible that she be allowed to participate by zoom just because she's based in the cayman islands and there are very few resources in the estate right now uh, but we will post that request to chambers at the appropriate time yeah i, I did have this came up in one of my other hearings uh, in malincroft um, we are post-covid now which means if you want a witness to appear remotely, you have to put it in writing and explain why pursuant to Rule 43. Okay. Rule 43 says you only get it if it's for compelling circumstances, or for, um, has to be under compelling circumstances, for good reason under compelling circumstances, good cause and something like that. Um, so, you know, I have to make it on a case-by-case -case basis as to whether or not it is or is not compelling circumstances. Understood, Your Honor. We will review the order and make that submission if appropriate. Okay. 
Can I ask for the record, uh, Your Honor, Adam Landis uh, for the debtors again from Landis at Laughing Cop. Um, we've been doing our best to let all parties know that we are post-COVID uh, to remind parties of Your Honor's chamber's rules and procedures uh, and to ensure that if uh, people want to submit declarations that they have the declarants in court uh, prepared for cross-examination. We'll continue to do that, um, but I think it uh, bears repeating on the record for those who are listening and we'll keep doing our job to let people know that they've got to be here. Okay, thank you. All right, anything else before we adjourn? All right, thank you all very much. We're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.